The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Well, thank you, uh, Harvest Bible Chapel friends. It's great to be back again this Sunday. And thank you, Roger, for those kind words. And uh, we do go way back, although it's only about 10 years ago. You can tell, right? <laughs> but uh, what a joy to come back a second week and spend this time with you. And uh, the weather's a little different than last week, remember? Aren't you, aren't you glad we had that weather last weekend? And this weekend, we got really nice weather. And uh, what a warm welcome you've given to me, not just weather-wise, but your response to the word and comments. I'll remain up here after the service if any you want to come and talk to me about something I've said. You're more than welcome to do that, but what a great joy to open God's Word. And we're, we're doing this brief two-week series that's centered around the idea of getting to know God. We've sang a lot about that this morning, right? I will follow about His name. And so we've, we've got this big idea we're trying to explore, and that is if we want to know God in a relational way, in a deep personal relational way, we have to get to know about him. And getting to know about him is how we get to know him. And so we've been trying to get to know about him. All of us realize that he's in charge, right? In the good times or in the bad, you're God, you're on the throne. That sounds real nice, but how do I really have a relationship with this God who's in charge? And all through human history, doesn't matter if it's Old Testament today, every People of God, Old Testament people of God, New Testament people of God have had to make a choice. You're going to have to make the choice today. You're going to have to make it tomorrow. And that is, am I going to trust this God or am I going to turn to other gods? It's a choice. There are a lot of other gods to choose. Would you not agree with that? And they're right there. We don't think of worshiping idols here in North America, but we have gods that are very attractive to us. So the question is, when we get in the good times or the bad, which God are we related to? Which one are we going to choose to follow? And that's what we're exploring this morning. This uh, wonderful idea that our Father God wants to develop this personal relationship with us. Really intentionally wants to develop it. But we need to get to know Him. So one of the interesting ways that we get to know God, and we started exploring that last week, right? One of the ways is through this interesting word called anthropomorphisms. Remember that big word? And the idea is that God, this is just one way. Uh, we sang this morning, Jordan, about the name of God. Sometimes he reveals himself through his names. But sometimes he chooses to reveal himself through human body parts. Very unusual. Now, I say it again very clearly. You all know God does not have body parts, right? He's a spirit. I understand when Jesus came to this earth, he took on flesh. But we're talking about the triune God that exists, and Father, Spirit still have no body. So as God reveals himself in the Word and talks about body parts, it's a way that we as human beings can, get, can kind of get to know him. And from that knowledge, get to trust him and follow him. And so last week we talked about the fact that God has... Okay, let's try that one more time. Last week we talked about the fact that God has hands... And that knowledge helps us to know that we are secure, right? The fact he has powerful hands. I can be secure in his hands. We talked about it. He holds our hand as we walk through life. 
Well, this morning we want to talk about the fact that God has eyes, the Father's eyes, and they help us with guidance issues. And there's a big idea I want to explain. It takes three points to get there. But just before we do, I just want to make sure you understand that there's a tremendous exchange that happens when you look deeply into the eyes of someone. Would you agree with that? You remember when you fell in love? You sat there across the table from that girl or that boy and you looked into their eyes and it was, you know, Google eyes and, you know, they, and there was emotion came because you were... That's what happens when we look deeply. When uh, Dan was a young man, he was kind of a precocious kid, and uh, he always challenged us on every issue, because he was very intelligent, and he had ideas. So once in a while, when Kay, who's here with me, had to get a message to him, this is what she would do. This is a little parenting tip for all your parents. She'd get right down on one knee or two knees, she'd grab him by the chin, and she'd be looking right in his eyes, said, Dan... I'm giving you a message. Listen carefully. And she's looking right into his eyes. And there was communication happening, right? Deep communication. That's how we have to communicate. That's how you have to communicate them still. Okay. I don't know what your name is, but I'll... Anyway. I just gave you a tip how to keep it up. Okay, all right. Um, I, I grew up in the Plymouth Brethren movement, the Gospel Halls. And uh, as... Uh, any of you have been in that. Uh, it was a very small gospel hall in Clinton, Ontario. And uh, no nursery, hard benches, long, boring sermons. And as a kid, it was easy to become distracted. I can remember sitting there counting the holes in the ceiling. You know those ceiling tiles that had a million holes? I'd be sitting there thinking. And, and then I'd get a little restless. And any of you had this experience? My dad would lean forward and look down the pew at me. He didn't say a word, but I got the message, right? We made eye contact and I got a message, Marv. Shape up or there's trouble when we get home. Sometimes I chose to obey the message, sometimes I didn't. We'd barely get outside church and trouble stopped, started, you know? But you get the idea, there's this deep exchange that happens. And that's, as we look today at this idea that God has eyes, that's what we're trying to say. There needs to come a place in our lives where we see God's eyes. He looks at us, we look back, and an exchange happens. And out of that exchange, we become better followers of Jesus. That's the big idea. Now, the first point we want to talk about is that the Father's eyes of evaluation reveal his mercy to us. This is where we have to begin. If you were going to take guidance from anybody, which kind of person would you want? And I'm just going to talk about something many of you do every day. You get in the car and you drive to Toronto, or you drive somewhere around here, and you turn on the radio and you listen for something. What do you listen for? You listen to find out where the traffic is backed up, Right? Now, who would you prefer to listen to? Someone that's in an airplane looking down or someone that's in a car looking ahead on the road? Where would you like to listen? You want the airplane, right? You want, you want the big view. I don't know how many of you like to fly, but when I was in college, I got a private pilot's license and I loved it. You get up off terra firma and you get to see the world from a whole different perspective, right? You get to see a bigger picture. Sometimes when you fly at 30,000 feet and there's no clouds, what a view you get, right? Well, this is what we need to understand. That's the view that God has about life. Amen? He sees the giant picture. And you need to understand that or else you won't take his guidance. He's not 
down there on terra firma like you saying, I wonder what's going to happen next. He's got this big picture. He knows everything that's going to take place. He's got it in mind. And, and, and here's the wonderful news. He does it with a heart of mercy and love to people, unless they're rebels. So the scripture talks about this. There's many verses that the Father is actively engaged in all the activities of people here on earth. He's actively engaged with what's happening right here at Harvest Bible Chapel this morning. I hope you believe that. His eyes are looking down on this congregation and he's wondering, are you going to listen to him this morning? Are you going to engage in this conversation? So, for instance, in Genesis 11:5, the Lord came down. This is back in the book of Genesis when the people of God, uh, the people that he'd created were getting a little rebellious and he came down to see this city and this tower called Babel and he decided, got to do something about it. So he scattered, right? He came down and looked one time and saw Noah was the only righteous man left and he got rid of everybody, right? God's looking down and he's making judgments. A verse that's very important to me is in Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So he's looking down and he's evaluating. He's making judgments. Is this person following me or is this person rebelling against me? 2 Chronicles 16, 9. The eyes of the Lord run toward, to and fro throughout the whole earth. Interesting picture, right? You ever seen eyes running? Right? Eyes pop out and they run. No, but this is, He's trying to use a visual image so we get a big idea. So here's God's eyes running all over, and he's looking for something. The Bible says he's looking through the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. Right in this congregation this morning, God's eyes are looking for people that really embrace Jesus, really embrace God. Would you agree with that? That's what he's looking for. And some of you are on the edge wondering, am I going to do this or not? Now, the interesting thing to me and the wonderful story I can share with you that out of this big picture of looking throughout the earth, he extends mercy more than judgment. Now, that's, that's a little different than maybe you got at home. Maybe as you looked, your dad looked at you and you got a lot of judgment instead of mercy. But God, generally speaking, extends mercy before judgment. Isn't that good news? So he's looking for people to respond to him. And, and by the way, he... He had that in mind before he even created everything. Hard for us to understand, wouldn't you agree? That before he created anything, he knew there was a need for mercy. He knew the people would be rebellious. And so the Bible says way back before creation, he actually decided that Jesus was going to have to die and meet the need. That was pre-creation. But in time, as his eyes are scanning, he extends mercy because of what he knew Jesus was going to do to people who respond to him. <coughs> Excuse me. It's the story of the Bible. He created. Everything is good. Adam and Eve fell into sin. Judgment fell on the earth. Got so bad, had to try. Start over. Because he wiped out everybody in the flood except for this one righteous family. Then he establishes a family called the people of Israel. Gave them laws to follow. They couldn't follow them. So Jesus came, died on the cross to say, this is the way you can have hope and connection to God. And all who have followed Jesus, all who have come by faith to him, all who've experienced that wonderful grace, this mercy that's demonstrated to us in sending Jesus, all of us have the hope of eternal life. You don't have to worry about death. Yeah, you may be a little fearful about the actual act of physical dying, 
But what, after, what comes after is wonderful. And it gives us hope as we go through life. So this idea, his eyes, he's, he sees the big picture and that's what we want. If I'm gonna take guidance from somebody, I wanna make sure the person has the big picture and that his normal way of extending anything towards me is out of hands of grace. And I can say to you this morning without any fear that any of you can prove me wrong, if you know the scriptures, you know that Jesus Christ is the answer to every person's need. You need to come by faith to God through Jesus Christ. You need to realize Jesus met your need for salvation. In Romans 5, it says very clearly, even when we were enemies, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if you're here this morning without having become a follower of Jesus, God's scanning. He's looking for people who will respond to his grace, respond to this wonderful news that Jesus has paid for your sin. He's looking for people that will respond and say, that is what I need and I'm gonna follow Jesus. The question is, are you one of those people? I would assume in this congregation, many of you have made that decision. If you haven't, this is a good morning, amen? Anybody who's a follower would say, this is a good time right now, right? Don't wait till you go home because you'll get distracted by the other gods. After the service, come right up here and talk to someone. I need what you talked about this morning. I need to know I'm related by faith through Jesus to this God who sees everything and extends mercy towards me before judgment the sad news, friends, is real. this is a reality I have to tell you. If you choose to continue in rebellion, you will face his judgment. We don't like to say that, but all who continually, up to the point of their death, refuse to accept this good news, you will end up in a place called hell. A place of torment, a place never designed for you, is designed for Satan and his fallen angels, and that will be your eternal situation. And how awful when God says to you, in grace and love, come to me through faith in Jesus. Get involved in this big idea I have. I'm looking for followers. Well, that's the first point. Now, if you have come by faith to Jesus, if you have desired this, my, my question to you is, where's your heart right now? Is it one that responds? I repent, I turn in faith to Jesus. And in that turning, I add one more dimension. I need to know that this person who says he wants to guide me actually cares about me every day. See, it's one thing to know he's got the big picture. It's another thing to know he's engaged in your life daily in such a way that he builds a trusting relationship with you. And so the next step in this relational building is the fact that the Father's eyes of compassion reveal his care for us. The Father's eyes of compassion reveal his care for us. He's watching, I respond in faith to his wonderful solution to my problem of rebellion. And then he says, by the way, I'm actually watching your life every day and I can meet every one of your needs because he sees them, he knows them, he understands them and he reaches out. Have you experienced that in your life where you, you know that God saw ahead of time that this need was gonna happen and, and he arranged things before the problem even showed up. You ever had that experience? And you go like, how did that happen? Well, I'll tell you how it happened. You got a loving, benevolent father who's watching. He can see the whole picture. And he says, I got to move some pieces on the chessboard to get ready because brother so-and-so is going to face this big issue and we got to have some help around there. 
we got to meet the need. I've experienced that many times. And this is a wonderful, wonderful blessing of the Christian life. This day-to-day care from a compassionate father. His eyes look down. Psalm 33, verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. See, those are followers of him, people that fear him. They have this sense in which they are reverentially trusting him. It's not fearful fear, it's this awe. And his eyes are on people like that who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Interesting, he says he knows the two basic needs in life. The long-term need is make sure the death issue is looked after, right? You may die, but there's eternity after. But then there's the present issue. Even if you go through famine times, he's watching, he knows what your need is. Uh, David in one of his psalms says, you know, I've watched righteous people all my life. I've never seen one of them begging for bread. I say, well, I think I have. And then I've been in homes of people in places in the world where they actually, I think I told you last week, they're praying for God to provide food for that day. And somehow God did. Met their need. It's the way God is. Psalm 34, 15, a wonderful verse that talks about this. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ear toward their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil that cut them off. So in this day-to-day living, friends, this, this God who has eyes that can see everything now turns his eyes in a very personal way into your situation. And with compassion, he says, listen to me, I care for you. Interesting in the scripture, it says this started before you were born. Isn't that amazing? In Psalm 139, that God saw, 3016, God saw you when you were just being put together in your mother's womb and said, I'm going to care for that person. I'm going to look after that person. So we have this confidence that he watches, he cares, he, he feels this great compassion, he understands your pain. He knows right now, if you're a follower of his, he knows right now what you're going to face all week. Do you know that? And if your heart is towards him, he's already arranging the pieces to make sure that the needs are going to be met. He knows what your need is when you walk out the door here this morning. Now, you may find that hard to believe, and I'm trying to overcome that. You see, that's what relationship is like. That's what true relationships should be like in the human family, right? That we deeply look at what's going on and we seek to meet the needs, right? In a way that's a million times more, God does that. One of the ways he describes how much he's compassionate towards you is this interesting phrase in the Old Testament where he calls you the apple of his eye. You ever read that in the Bible? We talk about someone being the apple of their eye. Do you know what that really means? It's, it, by the way, if you want to write verses down, it's Deuteronomy 32.10 and Zechariah 2.8. Have a little fun finding the Zechariah one, right? Twice at least and more. Those are just two that I picked out. We're called the apple of his eye. It's a very interesting Hebrew idiom for the pupil of the eye. Now, if you've studied the eye, I did a little reading before this, the way God designed the eyes. By the way, even evolutionists say, when you look at the eye, you kind of think there had to be a creator. Charles Darwin actually said that. Do you know that? When I look at the eye, I'm not sure that my theory holds up. It's in his writings. 
It's so intricate, so unbelievable what God made. So you got this very interesting. Do you realize it's better than your iPhone camera? Do you ever understand that? You take a picture of the camera, it doesn't show the depth, right? It's better than any movie camera. It's unbelievable. The intricacy, the unbelievable. And so God knew this was a pretty important part of your body. So the way he designed your face is to protect your eye. Now, once in a while, something strikes your eye. But that's not normal, right? Most of the stuff hits around it. And so the apple of the eye is speaking about you're the pupil, which is the most important part of the eye, the most precious, significant part. If you don't have a pupil, you got no sight. So the apple of the eye, this Hebrew idiom talks about the pupil, which is the significant part, the most, and it, it's the most protected part of your eye. And what he's trying to say to us, friends, is like, you're really special to me. You are significant. And I care for you in amazing ways. I watch over you. Does that mean you never have trouble? Obviously not. But even in the midst of trouble, you feel his protection. You feel his care. This interesting eye of compassion revealing his care for us. And he sees our needs and promises to meet them. All kinds of stories in the Bible I could show you. I'll just pick one of the Old Testament, one of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, I love the story in Genesis 16 of Hagar. You remember Hagar? The slave woman of Sarah. Remember Abraham and Sarah, the, the, the patriarchs that started the Old Testament family of God. And uh, Abram sinned. He picked up this slave girl out of Egypt when he was down there, brought her back. And as anybody would know, if you got two women in the house vying for one man, you got trouble. And there was trouble. Of course, Sarah was the mistress, so she was in charge. Hagar is the slave. It got so bad that Hagar decided she couldn't handle anymore this mistreatment, this conflict. So she runs away from Sarah. She thinks, I'm going to get away from my trouble. And the Bible says she fled out and, and in her exhaustion, ended up by a spring of water beside the road to Shur. A God-designed solution, right? How did she end up by that spring? Well, God put her there. And she's exhausted and she's crying out to God and God saw her need and he met that need. He had two ways in which he met her need. One was a word of instruction and one was a word of encouragement. And God often does that. His word of instruction to say Hagar was what? Go back home and submit. Oh my goodness sakes. How would you like that word of instruction? Does that sound like a caring compassion to God? Not on a human level, does it? Go back home, submit. But then he gives this word of encouragement, which I found in scripture. Whenever there's a tough command, there's a tough instruction from God, there's always a word of encouragement right attached to it, a word of blessing. You know, he said, you're going to have a son and he's going to be the father of many nations too. Of course, we know the son's name was Esau, uh, excuse me, uh, Ishmael, and Ishmael became the father of many Arabic nations. Now, what was Hagar's response to that event? She called name God by a name. Do you remember what the name was? El-Ra, which means the God who sees me. The God who sees me. 
You see, she had an encounter with God and she realized this God who can see everything sees me. Have you got that down? He doesn't just see everything in some big global way. He looks for people, even rebellious slave girls. And he reaches in their life and he says, this is the way it's gonna work, follow me. And she says, I gotta give you a name. You're the God that sees me. I wonder where you are in your journey in that regard. God sees and knows your needs. His promises to care for you are all through the scripture. New Testament, disciples following Jesus. You know, it's kind of one of those periods of time where they're, they're kind of wondering, is this thing gonna work out for me? Is this, you know, like, and Jesus just stops and he gives them this wonderful message. And you find it there in Matthew 6, 32. He says to the disciples, your father knows you have needs. He knows it. You see these flowers? I care for you more than them. You see the birds? I care for you more than them. In fact, he says there in that same passage in Matthew 10 that he sees when a sparrow falls. Some suggest the word fall there is really the word hop. That's kind of a blow your mind kind of thought that every time a sparrow hops, God knows. Well, that shouldn't blow your mind if he knows the number of hairs on all of your heads. That sounds like kind of supernatural knowledge, right? Whether it's when the sparrow falls in death or whether the sparrow hops in the ground, he says, you're worth way more than sparrows. And what his message is to those disciples is, I see your need. I am looking after you. I know what your needs are. Do you embrace that? Do you really believe that? One of the interesting things that that comes out of that whole kind of concept of being like Jesus in this regard. I just want to read you a little passage here in Matthew 9, just as a little connection, okay? This is the way God operates towards us. The question is, how do we operate towards other people, right? Do we extend the same care to others, the same compassion to others that he's extending to us? Let me just read this passage in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Listen this carefully. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Sometimes we think that's kind of a nice missionary verse. Pray for people. That's a prayer you ought to be praying for yourself and for everybody, right? You ought to be praying for your kids and your grandkids. Lord, send our family into the harvest fields. Help us to demonstrate your compassion for people to others. A few years ago, when we moved to Cambridge in 1995, we bought this house and we had wonderful neighbors on both sides. The people to the right of our house, older couple, like you talk about meticulous people. Like it's almost if I had a blade of grass that went on his yard, he'd let me know, you know, but the house was meticulous. He told me one time there's, there was this little wall, retaining wall. He said, Marv, if that falls over, it's going to destroy my shrubs. We spent about two grand and got the wall repaired because I didn't want any problem with my neighbor. Well, they, he died. She sold the house and a man moved in. It wasn't too bad at the start, but then things fell apart in that situation. Lost his business. And now the way he handles it is he rents rooms in his house out to people that would normally be on the streets. 
So we live now beside a home that's kind of an illegal rooming house. When that first started happening, the neighbors around wanted me to lead the charge to get rid of it. Why? Because our property values were going down. You know, it sounds like a real spiritual reason, right? And I went, went with my neighbor, went down, talked to the mayor, and went through all the things, and the, got to the legal department. They said, oh, there's laws, you can't do it. And I got to admit to you, at first I was a little self-righteous, and I wanted to get rid of these people. You know, the police would show up in the middle of the night, uh, fire department would come by. You can come up with all the reasons why to get your back up, right? They're dangerous. Can't trust them. And then God did a work in my life, reading this verse. Again. When I looked at those men that live next door, was I looking through self-righteous eyes or was I looking through the eyes of Jesus? Eyes of compassion. These people are harassed and helpless. Do you know if you, you fall off the wrong side of society, you get into a place of harassment and helplessness. Just walk the journey with some people out in the streets and see how, how the laws of our country and the way we operate puts them in a, almost in a jail that they can't get out of. And it's taken me four or five years to build trust to the place now where they call me by name and come and ask me for stuff. This God who has extended his love and mercy to you, how are you doing it, turning it towards others? You're going to move as a church downtown. You're going to be surrounded by people that need your eyes of compassion. Amen? And they live right next door to you right now. They may look like everything's going well, and yet they're harassed and helpless. They're in bondage to a wicked master. And God wants you to demonstrate his love. So how are you? How are you at at trusting the Father. Are you convinced he really cares enough about you where you are right now that you can trust him? Here's the bottom line, because this gets to my final point. I will never, ever respond to the guidance of God if I don't have those two things figured out. He can see everything, so he's, he's capable of doing everything right on a global level, and he sees me and knows my everyday need, and I can then trust him. It's when I have that trusting relationship, then I can say, okay, Tell me what I should do. Many Christians, they look at the Bible, it's all full of commands, and they kind of think it's a democracy and they can kind of choose. Well, I can obey that command and I can get rid of that one because I'm kind of in charge of life, but that's not reality. But are you willing, are you willing to accept his direction? That takes us to the third point. The Father's eyes of direction reveal his guidance for us. See, out of this wonderful relationship, God wants to guide you. You ever had the, I don't know if you live on a busy street or not, we do. Every once in a while I'm out near the front of the house and someone will stop their car and ask me for directions. Like, how do you get to Brantford? How do you get to Guelph? Now, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I'm just feeling a little bit frustrated because they're interrupting my very busy life. Have you ever had this terrible thought, I should tell them the wrong way to go? <laughs> Any of you ever felt that way? Just give them one street wrong. Oh, you're all better than me. They're all looking at me, you're shaking your heads like, no, I would never do that. Well, I don't think I've ever done it, but I've had that feel. Well, you know, God doesn't do that. When we literally come to him asking for directions in life, he always responds to that need. In fact, he's inviting you to look into his eyes so you get the directions. 
I've been around ministry for a long time and people are always asking about not those classic commands out of the Bible, but all this other area of living, like who should I marry? Where should I live? What job should I take? Where should I go to school? All, you know, those kinds of questions that there's no direct command in scripture. How are you going to get guidance about those things? The Bible already says we're like sheep. We need guidance. Here's the good news. The heavenly father knows that. He's loving. He knows everything. He sees the big picture. He's not confused. Go to him. And he gives us two clues how this works. The first is found in Psalm 32, 8 through 10. Psalm 32, 8 through 10. The Father wants to guide us lovingly and gently. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. God gives us an idea. This is the manner in which he wants to lovingly and gently guide us. That's how he wants to do it, lovingly and gently. I want to instruct you. I want to teach you how to go. I want to do it with gentleness. I don't want to do it like you have to do with a horse. Put a bit in his mouth, a bridle to make him go where you want him to go. When I was a teenager, I worked on a, a farm that had been owned by Mennonite people before, and they still had one team of Clydesdale horses, Bill and Sandy. I loved those horses. And of course, I was a kid, I was about 16, and one of the ways they still worked them was in haying season, they'd attach it, they'd, you know, bale bales, put them on the way, and then we'd hitch them up to the team horses and bring them in. And I kept begging, let me do it. And oh, you're not strong enough, you're not strong. These horses, if they get ahead, they'll, they'll control you. No, nah, no, nah, I can do it. Finally convinced them, disaster. <laughs> there was a sloping hill coming down, then you had to make a left turn up to the barn, and they got away from me. They knew where they were going. I was trying to direct them, hold them back. They just had a head of steam. They wanted to get rid of that wagon full of hay. And we went around that corner and dumped the whole hay right there. It took me hours to pick that up and get it in the barn. What was the problem? I couldn't control the horses. Because they knew where they wanted to go, but they didn't want my control. A lot of Christians like that. They kind of know where God wants them to go, but they don't want to go at his speed. And so God has to throttle them. That's to treat him like a horse. Jerk him around. Now, that's not the way God wants to reach out to you. As I've watched people grow in their maturity, I, I think one thing I've learned is infant Christians kind of are like those horses. God has to really be pretty strict, and he has to give you commands, you know? But as you mature, you ought to get to this place where you learn what you ought to do in the Christian life. He gives you clues. You shouldn't have to be jerked around, Right? You ought to be able to put this bigger thing together and, you, and God shouldn't have to tell you directly. He's expecting to mature enough to say, oh, I think that's what God would really want me to do. I, I've got that figured out. He, I, 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 I come out of the implications. He wants us to follow him, not fight him. The second thing we realize is not only does he want to guide us lovingly and gently, that's the manner, but he wants to guide us as we look intently into his eyes. This is the method. How does this work? How does God actually guide us with his eye? I wrestled with that for years, friends. Kept asking, okay, this sounds really nice. I'll instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I'll guide you with my eye. I memorize those verses. I'm thinking, like, how does that actually work in real situations? And one day I came across this scripture in Psalm 123, 1 and 2, and it all came together. It all came together. Psalm 123, 1 and 2. 123, 1 and 2. To you I lift up my eyes. 
Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. So there's God in the heavens, and I look to him. And then he says, here's how it works. Listen very carefully. I'll explain it. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. You get the picture? You probably don't understand it, but it's a, it's a picture that comes out of the ancient near each culture. When a master was doing business, or any, and that could have been his own farming, his own business, or interacting with another business person, they did it either in a tent or in a plaza. The master would sit on one side of the room and the slave servants would be lined up at the other side of the room. You got the picture? And if those slaves were really good slaves, listen carefully. He never gave them a command directly. He guided them with his eye. Isn't that unbelievable? They'd be looking at him, he'd be looking at them, and they'd make connection. And just the way they would move their eyes, that slave would know what he was expecting them to do. As I read about this, they said if they weren't quite that well-trained, they'd give just a subtle hand signal. People would almost miss it. You get the picture? And that's what God says. You want to know the method? The method is all about how much you are looking into the eyes of the master. So first of all, you have to, he's the master. We all agree with that? So he says, if you want direction as his servants, his slaves, and that's who we are, or members of his kingdom, the way we do it is we look into his eyes and he controls us. He makes eye contact with us as we're looking towards him. Doesn't even have to speak. Just with limited, subtle hand signals, he gives us direction. I kind of thought that sounded a little bizarre. Don't you think so? You say like, is that really true? Then a few years ago, I visited the country of Pakistan I was speaking at a field conference of some missionaries, and they were meeting in the city of Lahore. I don't know how much you know about geography in that area, but Lahore was a major city when it was still the whole Indian subcontinent. Now it's right, it's one of the few cities where you can access Pakistan into India. And in Lahore, over a period of time, especially under this one empire, they built what they call the Lahore Fort. And it's this huge complex on this hill and it was under the Mughal dynasty, and they, they built all these buildings. Well, one of the buildings, uh, Terry Wiley and I were there. We hired a guide to take us through this whole thing. So we're walking through all these buildings, and we came to this one called the Shish Mahal, which is like the Crystal Palace. It's absolutely gorgeous. You can hardly imagine. How could people build things so beautiful? All this inload, intricate mosaics in the floor, you know, of crystal. And, you know, it's just unbelievably beautiful. And the, the guide said, this is kind of an interesting room here. This is where the king did business. The emperor did business. He'd sit up on that side and he said his slaves would line up across the way there, his courtiers, all the people that had to serve him. And I said, tell me, how'd that work? Because I was thinking Psalm 123. And exactly what he said. Those slaves stood there watching for the eye of the emperor. And the emperor would look into their eyes and give a little signal and they'd go do the business. He said they'd never even talk. I said, you're kidding me. No, 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 I'm telling you the truth. And I thought, oh God, if that were true in my life, how much better it would be. First of all, to really, really operate as if God is God. And then to be so focused on his eyes that when he gives me subtle signals, I've got the message. 
You see, here's the deal, friends. If he's the master and we're the slaves, we really have one responsibility. What's the one responsibility of a slave? To look into the master's eyes. Would you agree with that? And then what's the response once we make eye contact? What's the one response? To obey, to obey. That's the one response. We don't get to choose and say, well, I don't like that direction. We obey the will of the master. We follow his directions. He wants to direct us. He wants to guide us. His eyes say that to us in the journey of life and all our activities. This powerful interaction is gentle, right? It's gentle. He doesn't want to jerk us around. Gently talk to us with his eyes. But the bottom line is you got to be looking at him. You got to be in touch with him. God wants to direct you. Do you want his direction? Your responsibility is to look into his eyes. I wrote down a few words. Here's the way he wants us to look. He wants us to look reverentially with awe and amazement and trust. The God of heaven wants to talk to me? You got to be kidding. The privilege of being his slave. Unbelievable. We got to look into his eyes attentively. No distraction. I want to ask you this question. What's distracting you from looking into the eyes of the master today? All kinds of things, right? Very attractive to us. Careers, family, you name it. Movies, sports, other people, internet, video games. A lot of stuff distracts us from looking into the eyes of the master. We need to look continuously. There's no time off in this one because you might miss one of his signals expectantly. I can't wait to get the next directions. Amen? Get up in the morning and say, God, can't wait. This is a gift from you this day. Show me what to do. Well, look into his eyes. Submissively. You see, as a master-servant relationship, I've already died to self. I'm not the king. He is. I've taken up my cross. He controls everything. You know the hardest thing I've found in my life to let him control? The timing. See, we as human beings, we want to be in control of time, right? God do this by this date. That's one thing God never gives up is the timing. Masters never do. They're in charge. And last of all, I look obediently. Obediently. Whatever you say. We used to sing a chorus when I was a youth pastor. I don't know if we still sing it anywhere today, but it was called obedience. The words go like this. I'm not going to sing it to you because that might mess it up, but... Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Just stop there and ponder that, eh? You want to show that you really believe God? Obey him. The very best way to show you believe, doing exactly what the Lord commands, doing it happily. I know a lot of people, Christians even, that obey God, but it's not with a happy heart. Chin up, I know I got to do this, you know. Do it happily. Action is the key. Do it immediately joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. What's my response today? Well, here's, and I have to close very quickly. My response is, where do I find God's eyes, right? I want to look into his eyes. Where do I find them? Well, the Bible gives us two big clues. One is in Hebrews 12 too. It's Jesus, the writer of Hebrews. Fix our eyes on him, the author and finish of our faith. That's the response. Where do I find him? Looking to Jesus, the perfecter of faith. He's got it all figured out. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Can you imagine Jesus looking into the master's eyes, right? Jesus, when he was here on earth, was submissive to the Father. 
He looked into the father's eyes. The father said, you're going to the cross. And he said, that's okay. And he did it joyfully because he saw beyond that terrible, terrible event. There was joy. And the joy is leading all of us as his children. The second place is in his word. James 1.22. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Where are you in that? I love this picture. Anyone who's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and all at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer acts. He will be blessed in his doing. You get up in the morning, look in the mirror. Most of us do something, right? If nothing else, we say, I wish I looked differently. What can I do to dress this mess up, right? So we put a little makeup, comb our hair. Why? You look in the mirror and you say, something has to happen before I go. You look into God's word, the same response should happen. Something has to happen. I'm not measuring up. I don't like what I see. What are you going to do? You're going to be like the person who looks in the mirror and just walks away? And are you going to be like the person who looks in the mirror of God's word and says, I will respond? One of the profs at uh, Heritage, David Barker, he says, every time you crack the book, you come face to face with the living God. Amen? You see, when you, when you look into the Word, you see Jesus, and you see His eyes saying to you, I love you. I meet all your needs. Watch my gentle eye signals. Don't be rebellious. Don't, don't make me jerky around like a horse. And so as we listen to God's directions, it changes how we live in our homes, in our churches, in our business world, in our school life, in our communities. Whether it's good times or bad times or vacation time or distress, God wants to give you clarity. Are you looking into his eyes? So today we wind up with three questions. Do you know him personally? Do you know him as a great God who wants to meet your need. Secondly, genome is someone who cares and you can trust. And thirdly, will you receive his guidance by looking into his eyes? Father, help us to take this message and figure out how it fits into our personal state right now where we are. Where am I in this journey? And God, help us to be honest, to respond to what you're saying to our hearts right now. Oh God, don't let people walk out of here saying that was a nice message and go on living like they have coming in. May there be some fresh way they embrace the wonderful news that God has eyes and we can be guided in the journey of life. Thank you in advance for what you're going to do in all of our hearts and lives as we embrace this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.